I'm not John Lennon. I'm just a celebrity impersonator speaking with me voice. But this is a gear podcast devoted to those oldies but moldies classic TV shows, movies and all that rubbish. You should give it a listen, because a splendid time is guaranteed for all. I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. The Beatles' film Let It Be was designed as an inside look at the creation of the Beatles' album. And while it did feature some amazing music, it concluded with an exhilarating rooftop concert. The end result stood as proof positive that the Fab Four were no more. The 60s were over, and we might as well move along because there was nothing left to see there. It also drove home the message that you can't go home again. Well, now maybe we can. Director Peter Jackson has announced a new Let It Be, which is being created from the 55 hours of footage and over 100 hours of audio that were recorded during those sessions, and one that he promises is going to be considerably more upbeat than the original Let It Be. Let's face it, it couldn't get any more depressing. To talk about Let It Be, both the original and what we're calling Take Two, we've turned to journalist Steve Matteo, author of The Beatles' Let It Be, which has been published by Continuum as part of its 33 and a third series. It goes behind the scenes on the whole story with a variety of exclusive interviews. When you heard the news that Peter Jackson was doing this new documentary, basically a new version of Let It Be, what was your reaction? Well, I was thrilled um, because it's finally going to get, you know, put out. I mean, at first I was just thrilled because Let It Be has never been released on Blu-ray, or DVD. It did, I believe, come out briefly on VHS. Yes, yes, it did. Um, so, you know, Beatle fans, as much as they probably are not, you know, crazy about the movie, still want it out. You know, they want everything, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so I was thrilled. And then the fact that Peter Jackson's involved in it, you know, means it's going to get this whole new life. It isn't just like, well, we're finally going to put the movie out, you know, on Blu ray or whatever. So, um, you know, I'm sure you probably know, and I think I, I, maybe I mentioned it in the book, I don't even remember now, it's so long ago I wrote the book, yeah. that, you know, the Beatles wanted to do Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. You know? So um, the fact that the man who directed all of the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films is putting this out is, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of perfect. I mean, I think, you know, it's a generational thing. I think he's... I don't think I don't think he's as old as, you know, uh, you know Paul or Ringo or whatever. But uh, you know he's of that generation too. You know he's not just some young filmmaker who's going to come in and try to, you know, do whatever. I mean I think he'll be very sensitive to the material. And he has a documentary film out right now in release. What I've seen of so that I, is amazing. The World War One one you're talking about. Yeah. Right? Oh my yeah. God, it's amazing yeah. what he did. Yeah. So obviously, you know, uh, on a lot of levels, this is, you know, this is, this is great. And I mean, it, it will, it will, I mean, the Beatles have never really done anything like this before. I mean, obviously they've done things like, you know, the anthology and they do, you know, interviews and things around reissues. And certainly there's been, there's, there's been material that they released through the years that has never been, you know, released before, like on the anthologies uh, and the BBC uh, recordings, um, you know, and, you know, I mean, things like that, like they just did with the White Album. But to to take, you know, all the, I think it's 55 hours of film, you know, and now to construct something brand new. And, and as you know, they're going to obviously 
they're going to release this with a, with a, a nice cleaned up version of the original film, which I think is the right way to do it. I think that's smart. To just sort of bury the original film and come up with something new, I think that would have been a mistake. I also think it would have been uh, really disrespectful to Michael Lindsay Hogg because I think that um, he did a, the best job he could given the material that he had to work with. And, um, you know, he's a wonderful filmmaker. Um, he's a great person. I've actually met him, and uh, I interviewed him for my book, and he was he was very accommodating and gracious and answered all the questions. He's a really interesting guy, too. I mean, he did, he did the Brideshead uh, Revisited um, miniseries. Right. Um, you know, he is separate of what he did with Let It Be. Um, you know, he's, he's a really interesting guy. He's an artist. Um, he had a, he had a very fascinating life. As you know, too, he did the, um, he did the rock and roll circus with the Rolling Stones. So I'm glad they're doing it the way that they're doing it. Um, you know, obviously they've, the Beatles revisited Let It Be when they put out the Let It Be Naked which I think a lot of people were extremely unhappy with. Yeah. I think that was a real missed opportunity that fly on the wall desk where they just took these kind of snippets, you know, I mean, everybody knows, I mean, you don't have to be a Beatles expert to figure this out. I mean, the right way to have done that was a, to, to put out a complete version of the rooftop concert, right? You know, all 40 minutes of it, however long it is. And, you know, there are complete takes of, um, you know, covers of, you know, them covering, you know, Chuck Berry or whoever. And there's complete takes of songs like what they just did with the White Album reissues. There's complete takes of um, songs that would appear on Beatles solo albums and things that would appear on Abbey Road. Right. So, I mean, obviously, you know, Let It Be was released after Abbey Road, it was recorded before Abbey Road, which again everybody everybody knows that. I mean, obviously for me, you know, because you know this is the this is the period that I've written about. You know, the fact that it, it is going to be not just okay, we're going to just put the album out again, or we're just going to put the movie out again. You know, that the fact that they're creating this new thing, and it's Peter Jackson. Yeah. You know who's like one of the most esteemed filmmakers in the world. I mean, he's in, he's in like that club of like, you know, there's a handful of people and he's in that club. So there's going to be so much interest in this, you know, aside from all the Beatles interest, you know? So for me, it, it's, it's really going to be a windfall. I mean, to be, to be honest, you know? So, I mean, I speak about it, you know, you know what happens is, you know, like years go years go by, and you know, it's, nobody asks me about it. It doesn't come up. It's just, it's not a, it's just not a point of interest. Right. And then there's times for whatever reasons, you know, there's interest in it. You know, like I was on um, the day before Thanksgiving, I was on Sirius XM with the express purpose of talking about the White Album reissue. Um, you know, the, the reissues that were out, yeah. but they really wanted to talk about my book too. You know, they Which were really great. interested, you know, they were, yeah, we, I mean, I really didn't expect it. I mean, we you know we sent them a book and you know, it's just so they can have it if they wanted to ask a question or whatever, but I mean, they were really interested in it. You know, I mean, you have to remember too, that it isn't, it isn't just, you know, a Beatles album. Okay. It is for all intents purposes. It is the last 
Beatles album. It's the end of the Beatles. It's, it's sort of the end of the 60s, too. I mean, it's very much, you know, that. It's sort of like when you, when you watch the end of the film, you know, or, or if you see those pictures of them up on the rooftop, it's, it's really emblematic of sort of the end of the Beatles and the end of the 60s. It's, if you wanted a picture that encapsulated it, I mean, obviously, if you just show somebody a pic, that picture and they don't have any sort of context, it's, right. it's meaningless. But for me... It's, it really is sort of like, that's, you know, it's over, you know, that's it. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way or, you know, it's the apocalypse or anything like that. Like you said, for all intents and purposes, this was the last Beatles album. Although we, like you said earlier, we also know Abbey Road really was the last. One of the things that has always amazed me is to watch the group go from this disjointed or seemingly disjointed, this chaotic sessions for Let It Be slash Get Back, and then somehow being able, and knowing it was over, but somehow going into the studio and recording Let It uh, Abbey Road. Right. How how the heck does a band do that? <laughs> to go from what seems like their end to saying, well, we better go out on a win. Well, I think I'll try to give you sort of a, a, an encapsulated or shortened version of it. I mean, essentially what happened was, and, and I get into this in the book, and if you read the book, you you obviously know this, is, you know, they, they did this sort of live... Uh, uh, hey Jude, it wasn't it wasn't completely live, and that was the first time they had really performed together in any sort of capacity in a long time, and they enjoyed doing it, you know. So they said, "Gee, you know, maybe we could do some kind of concert, some kind of one-off thing." And then it was sort of like, "Well, if we're going to do this, then maybe we should, you know, make some kind of film of it, you know, or or whatever." It was it was it wasn't like they sat down and they had a blueprint and then they executed the blueprint. It was sort of like they were just kind of doing things. And this is how everything sort of was done after, uh, after Brian died. Right. It really all became very much of like, you know, flying on the seat of their pants, so to speak. So they tried to do this, you know, concert, you know, film, and it, it just, it just wasn't working. And they really wanted to, they really wanted to sort of, get back to a more sort of stripped down band approach and not work with George Martin and go through the whole process of making, you know, a, an album that took so long and was, you know, it was, you know, the world was kind of changing too musically. I mean, I think they took things to a certain point with Sgt. Pepper. And then I think there was a kind of, there was a sort of reaction, I think, in music to, to that, you know, like 68 really became sort of like a year where things kind of all this sort of beautiful flower power kind of psychedelic overproduced kind of thing kind of started to give way. You know, 68 became sort of a very radical year, not just politically, but I think musically. And I think a lot of people, this is going to sound maybe off the subject, but a lot of people heard the band's first album, you know, Music for Big Pink. And they heard this very sort of, you know, stripped down, you know, not not necessarily acoustic, but sort of very organic kind of sound, you know, and that was one of the reasons why Cream broke up too. Clapton heard that and said, you know, what am I doing in Cream with these 10 minute guitar solos? And, you know, I think it was, it was a real sense of like, like getting away from where everybody was at in 67. So then the, what happened is obviously it didn't work. They weren't happy with it. And so they were like, you know what? Let's just let's just forget about let it be because it's not working. 
you know, they tried to get um, Glenn Johns tried to mix the album and come up with something that would be, you know, workable that they could release. Didn't happen. He went back apparently and did a second mix and tried again, and that wasn't working. And, you know, this was before sort of Phil Spector got his hands on things. And so they said, you know what, let's just take this stuff and let's just put it to the side and let's just kind of forget about it. It's like a bad dream. And let's just, we'll just get, get back with George Martin and we'll, we'll go into EMI, Abbey Road Studios, and let's just make a proper album. Did they know for sure that it would end up being their last actual album that they would work on together? I don't really think that that would be accurate to say at the time. I mean, maybe, maybe some of them might have thought it, but I don't think it was ever official. Like, okay, guys, this is the last album. Right. We're completely done. I mean, I think it kind of, as it, as it evolved, I think they probably realized, you know, yeah, this is kind of the end. You know what I mean? We're kind of, we're kind of done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So um, that's, that's, that's what happened. It really became like, you know, Let It Be was a reaction to sort of Sgt. Pepper. And then Abbey Road was sort of a reaction to Let It Be, you know, in some cases. Sure. And what's interesting, too, though, is that, um, like you said, they put it aside and said, all right, this is not working. Let's go on Abbey Road. It's interesting. And we're going back to this new version and everything coming out. And this is another reason why I support the original coming out at the same time as the new version of, of Let It Be. Because otherwise we get revisionist history. Because you listen to, even if you read Peter Jackson's statement when it was officially announced, he says, you're going to see what these are four friends making great music together, having a great time. Well, that flies in the face of everything we've ever heard of Let It Be. So it seems like this new version is definitely going to be molded to be a more positive version of the events. Yeah, I think there I think there's some truth to that. I don't know if that's exactly what they're setting out to do because then really it isn't a documentary because I think the idea of a documentary is it's like journalism and you sort of let things unfold yeah. like you don't have a point of view. I mean, honestly, you read my book, you know that like I ran into this myself where there were people that I interviewed who were there who said no, it wasn't all dreary and horrible. Right. I remember one of the people said and I think I I think this is in my book that basically said that, you know, John Lennon would like walk into a room and everybody would just fall down laughing because he was so hysterical. So it wasn't all sort of horrible. It wasn't, you know, all the time. I mean, I think, I think the, I think the overall effect of it, I think also like how they felt about it by the end of it or after the fact, you know, they would like, you know, look, these guys are rock stars and like, they're not used to like being on a soundstage at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning right. in the January. So, you know, there's that too, you know, let's say they, let's say they decided to do this, you know, you know, on the beach in Brighton at three o'clock in the afternoon in the summer, (laughs) would it have been the same dreary, horrible experience? I mean, it's just, it was like, I think it was too much like work, you know, where when they made records, it was a bit more leisurely Yeah. and they would just kind of show up at Abbey Road and they would work on things and, you know, so I, you know, look, it was a fishbowl too. Let's face it. I mean, you know, you've got the look. If it was, you have a family, I assume, right? Yes. Okay, anybody has a family, right? If somebody came over the house and photographed, you know, the family from morning to night for a month, I, I guarantee you, it's not going to be the prettiest picture oh, in the world. Even if, even if you're the happiest family in the world, you know. So this is, you know, it, it becomes once you once you 
put a camera on something, it changes things. Right. You know, it just immediately changes everything. You know what I'm saying? It could have been a completely different experience. It, it, look, there, there's some great music that came out of that period. Let's yeah. face it. And if you watch the rooftop concert, they do seem like they're having some fun up there. They're it's wonderful jokes, watching. Smiling. Yep. I mean, it's they're a band. They're playing. I mean, George looks a little like, you know, but that's George. I mean, George yeah. has always been kind of like, did he that, ever look happy you know? performing? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying he looks unhappy, but I mean, yeah. I think George has always been like, he just kind of, he plays and he's, you know, he's a, George is, he's a musician. He's a play. He's got a great sense of humor actually, yeah. you know, but I think that, you know, he's, when you have John Lennon out front like that, you know, John is a cut up, let's face it. He's the guy making the jokes and making the faces and, you know, and Paul's, you know, always up for, you know, going along with it, you know, and Ringo's Ringo. I mean, <laughs> People always you know. say that Ringo's so, Ringo. <laughs> right. That's great. So, I mean, it, I don't think, it, I don't think it ever was the horrible thing that everybody made it out to be. But I also think that I think Peter maybe is, I think maybe he's overstating what he's saying. Yeah. I think. You know, you know, that's just that's and look, that's just my opinion. Sure. He's been privy to look at all 55 hours of the film. I mean, I've seen a lot of bootleg of it. I have some, right. you know, I've seen some. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, you know, just I mean, you could go on Facebook or anywhere and, and you know, Google this stuff of them just sitting around and playing and they're all kind of laughing and having a good time and jamming and they're having fun. And it's like. You know, it, it's people love drama. Let's face it. You know, everybody wants to talk about it and oh, the drama. And you have to remember, this is one of the first times people ever saw, you know, one of these famous rock bands, kind of like Warts and All. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everything was always carefully stage managed, and you know, where you didn't you didn't see this kind of you didn't see this kind of stuff. Everything was always polished and painted and ready to go and so this was the first time and especially it's the beatles yeah. <laughs> it's the biggest band in the world so we're going to put them in a studio for a month and we're going to put a film camera on them i talked to one of the one of the cameramen said that their mandate was that they were to be on the set and ready to go and as soon as one of the beatles walked in they start filming and they would not turn their cameras off until all the Beatles were gone for the day. Wow. So, of course, you're going to, there's a lot of just people sitting around being grumpy. They had a fight with their wife, or they didn't like what they had for lunch, or, you know, it's like people used to say they were like the four headed monster. You know, it's like as much as you, you can say, you know, John or Paul were sort of the leaders and, and everything, it's, they very much were a democracy, and they really didn't do things unless everybody agreed with it. You know, so it's, you know, with anything, it's like you get four people together and say, what do you want to go to lunch? <laughs> yeah. You got a pro you got a problem. Yeah, okay? absolutely. So here you have the Beatles making a record or a movie or whatever in this pressure cooker environment of fame and money. And, you know, it's the sixties and they're all feeling their oats. You know, they're all, you know, these groups are always like, they're groups. They're like, you know, a bunch of guys, you know, and then all of a sudden they get a little older, they get a little money, they get a little fame, they fall in love, they want to get married, they want to start a family, and suddenly the gang's, you know, not as important anymore. It's, a it's just a maturity thing, too. It's just a normal thing. You know, they were very young when they started. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, I mean, they were still pretty young at this point. They're still like, 
you know, 26 years old, I guess, probably roughly on average was the age, probably maybe 27. So, you know, that's the age where, you know, it's a lot of people. It's like, you're really starting to kind of move away from all that. People are, you know, getting engaged, they're getting married, they're having children, they're buying a house. They're, you know, it's the Beatles. I know that I get that, but it's, they're still people. Absolutely. I think part of the negative impression of let it be has been fueled by the Beatles. Because seriously, yeah. over the years, over the decades, I don't think anybody has had one good thing about Let It Be. <laughs> Do you know what I no. mean? No, they've so. all, I mean, John always said it, well, you know, it was misery or, you know, whatever. And, you know, Paul hated it because of the fact that the album was sort of, you know, wrestled away from him. You know, he was the one who hated the most what Spectre did right. in terms of the orchestrations and uh, the choirs and all of that stuff. So he probably had the least amount of control over that album. So therefore he's, he's going to hate it the most. I don't think there's any question about it, you know? And I think, you know, George was just kind of just disgusted with everything by that point, you know, the whole scene where, you know, yeah, Paul, I'll play whatever you want. You know, everybody focuses on that one scene, you know, on the one hand, I mean, it's, I, I doubt that was that much different than the way they ever did things. And on the other hand, though, I think it was George saying, you know, saying what he always wanted to say for the whole world to hear, like, you know, I'm kind of tired of you telling me what to do, Paul. Right. You know. Absolutely. All right. Now let's let's go to the specifics of the book. First of all, what led you to write the book? Because I've written a number of books over the years. You have to really be into your subject to be able to do a passionate job with it. What led you to write this book? Okay. Well, I I had written a book on Bob Dylan. That was my first book. And I heard about this series, um, 33 and a third, you know, where an author would take on one album. And so I tracked down the editor and I contacted him uh, because no one had really done anything like this at that point. I mean, there'd been the odd book that someone would do about an album, but there had never been a series. So the idea of it was, for me, was, you know, really intriguing. And I had heard... um, Warren Zanes, uh, I believe he's from the, a group called the Del Fuegos. I heard him on a radio show talking about the series, and he was going to do a he was going to do a book on Dusty Springfield. And I figured, wow, if this guy is doing a book, then you know, for this series, this must be really pretty cool. So I reached out to the editor, and he actually wanted me to do a book on Bob Dylan. And so I said, well, you know, I've I've kind of already done Bob Dylan. Yeah. You know, I really would like to do something else. And, you know, I I sort of had in mind the Beatles, you know. And he's like, okay, yeah, why don't you do a book on the Beatles? And I chose Let It Be because I know it's a great story, you know. It's obviously not their best album, okay. But it was it's just such a great story because of all the bootleg material. Uh, and it's, you know, the end, and it's, from, it's a film. Um, this was around the time when um, Phil Spector was going through all his problems, you know, all that was starting up with him, where he ended up in jail. Right. Um, this was when there was, um, the bootlegs was in the news. Uh, some of these bootlegs were, were turning up and, and were being recovered and turned back over to the Beatles. Right. So I just thought, you know, the writer in me said, you know, this is a great story. You know, to do Sgt. Pepper would have been like, what's the point? You know, there'd been some books on that. You know, I I didn't feel 
confident enough to do something on, say, like Rubber Soul or Revolver, you know? I mean, the White Album would have been a, that would have been a really great one to tackle, you know, in retrospect, sure. you know? But um, also in retrospect, I'm, I'm glad that I chose Let It Be um, because it really is, it really is interesting. And now here we are again now, you know, and, and you know, and this was before the Let It Be Naked came out or just about as it was coming out, I believe, you know. So, you know, once again, here we are now with this particular album and it has this new life again. And, and, and again, that's what, what I liked about it too. It wasn't like I was going to write, you know, something, you know, about just the past and it's a museum piece and it's, you know, frozen and amber kind of thing. Like I really had like new material to talk about, to talk about Phil Spector, to talk about the bootlegs. You know, I really was able to, you know, interject new stuff into the, into the story, you know, which is not something you can always do with something that has happened in the past. No. You know, so, um, it really turned out to be a great idea. You know, there is actually, and I, and I, and I go into this very in detail in, in the book, there is another book that is really a great book on let it be, uh, by a guy named Doug Sulpey. And he really dove deep in, into the, into the sessions. I mean, he must've listened to every piece of audio that there is every hour of it. However, he got his hands on all of the bootlegs. Wow. And I mean, I consider his book really like it, it's the definitive book in terms of um, presenting it as as just the raw data of it, you know, of everything that sort of happened. Right. You know what I mean? I think my book is more of an encapsulated sort of narrative that anybody can pick up and read, where his book goes into incredible depth. And from what I understand is he he wrote it or wrote a first draft and went to Apple um, for whatever reason. And they said, if you put the book out like that, we'll sue you. Cause wow. I think he basically transcribed every minute of it. Okay. Right. And Apple owns the transcripts. They own the, well, they, I, I yeah. get whatever they own or don't. I don't, I don't know the details. This is what I heard. I've never met him. I've never, I never talked to him. Right. Um, but I always reference that book. It's only fair to, sure to to give it its due because it's a wonderful book and it was it's been released in different versions i think it was saint martin's press put out like a regular you know major publisher sort of trade version of it i think it's called i think it's called get back there's different titles for it but if you look it up yeah if you're really interested in this stuff i would highly recommend it and i do mention it in my book right but now once you decide okay this is the book i'm going to do how hard is it then to do the book. I mean, to reach out to people, to find people, to get people to talk. Uh, you know, a lot of people are gone. Uh, even at the time, I'm sure a lot of people were gone. But but nonetheless, was it tough getting people to say, hi, yes, I'll talk to you for this book? Well, I'll answer the, I'll answer the question two ways. If I'm going to write a book, I'm going to make sure, first of all, that I have a lot of material to work from. Right. Like, I have a very extensive library of books on music, for example. I have a whole room that's just music books. And, and at, at this point of the game, now this is quite a number of years after I, I wrote Let It Be, I have close to 200 books just on the Beatles. Wow. Okay. okay. So I first really make sure that I have enough material. Like I'm not going to take on a project if I don't think that I have uh, enough material. With the Dylan book, I really didn't do interviews. 
It was sort of my first book. It was a more of a photo book. It was a very sort of brief introduction to his whole career. Okay. So it really was a very sort of basic kind of thing. It was just you know, can I write a book? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's <laughs> yeah. kind of what that's kind of what that was. That right. was also part of a, a series that book too. But um, you know what I, what I always say is the writing of the book is not the hard part. <laughs> It's, oh, no. it's, it's getting the deal and then, you know, finding the time to do it when you have other responsibilities. Oh, yeah. The actual <laughs> writing of it is never, I, you know, I have so many ideas and, you know, there's never, I, I never sit there and, and, go, and have writer's block. Well, first of all, it's nonfiction, so I don't think you should have writer's block. But what I did do with this book is I did interview probably close to 30 people. And I was able to talk to people that worked on the album, that worked on the film, uh, that worked with the Beatles, you know, whether it was at Abbey Road or whether it was at Apple Records. Uh, you know, I tried to really create a lot of context. I talked to a lot of other authors who've written about the Beatles. You know, I really wanted to know a lot. Like, I, I talked to a guy, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name. His name is Andy Babiak. He's actually a musician, okay. and he's written several books uh, about the instruments that uh, musical artists use. And I, I think the two main ones that he did was the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. He did a book called Beatles Gear. And so I'm not a musician, but I really wanted to know, like, what instruments did they use and why? And, you know, what was the, you know, what was the effect of using that, you know? Uh, you know, I talked to people who, you know, have worked with the Beatles in the studio, maybe not necessarily on Let It Be, but I wanted to just get a sense of, you know, what was it like being in the studio with the Beatles? You know, what was it like working at Abbey Road? You know, what was it like being at Apple at that time? I talked to a number of people who were at Apple at the time, you know. Um, so, you know, it's just some of that is almost like it's almost like background. It's 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 like you're kind of like swimming in the ocean, like you're not you're not necessarily spearing the fish, but you're kind of swimming in the ocean. Like, I just want to get, I want to have a feel for the, for that world and that time. And, you know, what's it like being around these guys, these right. four guys? I mean, what's, you know, I never, I never, I did meet Paul. I did have a chance to meet Paul, but I never met any of the others. And I never spent any real time with Paul. <laughs> you know, I met him. Um, and spent you know a few moments with them, but um, so you know it, it just you know, at that point you're sort of like you put your you put your writing hat on you put your your journalist hat on you almost have to separate the music a little bit you know I come into writing I come in first the music is first the writing is second you know my musical knowledge is that's my strength the writing is something I'm I'm still I feel like I'm still learning how to be a writer. You know, right. even I've done this for a long time now, you know. So uh, I was very lucky. A lot of people were willing to talk, and a lot of them, most of them, were really gracious and had great stories to tell. Um, I mean, I literally talked to people all over the world. I mean, I talked to people, obviously, in the United States, in England. I talked to people in Germany. I talked to people in Australia, New Zealand. Um, you know, they're just, these people, I think they're very proud of the fact that they worked with the Beatles. And a lot of them went on to, to do many other wonderful things, you know. And you know what? You, th you think you know so much, and then when you take on the project, you realize how little you know. 
So it becomes this wonderful learning experience, you know? Oh, yeah. It, it's like, it's just, I learned so much, and I'm still learning, and I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, there's still so much I don't know, you know? I think people think, oh, you wrote a book on the Beatles. Wow, you must know everything about the Beatles. It's like, you know, it's really just the opposite. I think it's, you want to learn. So that's why you write the book, to, to learn, because there was so much I really didn't know sure. and I, that I uncovered, you know. How important in the mix for you for doing the book, and I assume it wouldn't have stopped you anyway, was, was uh, uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg. I mean, how, how significant was having him to be able to do this book? Very. Because, I mean, he, he directed the film. He had worked with them um, quite a bit previously on these little music clips. So, and that's really why they hired him, you know. He's done a number of these short little music videos that you've seen. You know, he knew them from when he did, you know, British music, tel- these British music TV shows. So he had a history with them, you know. And, um, you know, he's an interesting guy because he's sort of another, um, another American. I believe he was an American who sort of went to England to kind of make it, you know, s- sort of like Stanley Kubrick. Or like um, the, Richard the Lester, record producer, no? Richard Lester, yep. yes, uh, the record producer uh, Tony Visconti, who produced David Bowie, you know, right? Um, you know, so uh, he just he's just a great guy, you know. And we had a chance to meet later on and connect, and um, he's he's just he's just a lovely guy. He really is. Um, no pretenses whatsoever. You know, you would think, you know, wow, I did this and I did that. I mean, he's just the most wonderful man. He truly is just a, just a great guy. And I'm, I was so lucky that he was able to talk, you know, the hardest part sometimes was not getting the interviews, but finding these folks emails (laughs) or, or, you know, or asking somebody who you did find an email, can you pass on my request kind of thing? Right. You know? So, um, now he was, he was great. And, and, um, you know, look, he was there every day. You know, he made the film. He was the director. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was, it was, you know, it was important to talk to people who worked on the film. I talked to some of the cameramen. I talked to the cinematographer. I talked to some of the people who did audio on the film. You know, I mean, it was, that was the thing. It wasn't like you, when you're writing about an album, where you're just talking to the people that worked in the studio. It was a film, you know? So there was all of that. To, to bring to it. And, and when you're talking to film people, there, there's a different, there's a different context for them. They're, they're seeing it from a different point of view, obviously, you know what I mean? So that was, it was very helpful. And, you know, it was kind of my concept when I, in writing the book. And I think, I think I was successful in doing this is that I wanted the book to, to read like a documentary film. Yeah. Like I didn't want it to be my opinion or my take on let it be. I wanted to collect this information, put it into a narrative, and, and put it out there. And then, frankly, I, there were some people that criticized me for doing that. They felt that it was a little dry or that there was no opinions or some of it was a little too granular, you know. But I, I felt that, you know, I, it was a record. It was a document. And I, I, think it, I think it adds to – there's so many books written on the Beatles. To write a book on the Beatles, you're almost, you're almost like – defeating the purpose right from the start because what new can you really say or bring to the table? So, I mean, I really just, so that's why I thought to really, um, 
to take a journalistic sort of documentary approach, I thought would be the best way to, to spout my opinions would be sort of like, well, who cares? Who are you? You know what I mean? So I think I had, a, I, I think I had a decent amount of original source material. In other words, people that I interviewed that I use their words, right. you know? So, uh, it's a short book too. It's not, you know, it's not a three or 400 in-depth book. So I think it's, I think for what it is, I think it, it, it offers, you know, a, it offers a, 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 a good look at what happened. And, and I, I, I like more of this sort of journalistic approach. You know, I, I'm not a fan of, of a lot of opinion. When I read a book and it's a lot of opinion right. about music, say, to me it's like, okay, the person might make some, you know, um, interesting observations or things that I didn't think about, you know. But I'd really rather just like, well, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Tell me what happened and then I'll decide what I think. You know what I mean? So I think I think of I think of the reader. You know, what is the reader? You know, what is the reader going to take away from this? You know, and they don't know me. Right. You know, so it's like I, I rather let I rather let you know Alan Parsons talk. I rather let Klaus Vorman talk. You know, Peter Asher. You know, um, Peter Brown. You know, the people who were there. Let let them talk, and quote them. And, you know, I just think that I just think it's more interesting. You know, in writing this book, I mean, you go into uh, like with any subject you're writing a book of, you, you go in there with a certain perception in your mind of what that subject is, uh, you know, what you what you can what you how you view it. What were the revelations? I mean, how did you what was the flip side of that? The other side of that when you came out the other end, having written the book, what had changed or what had been eye opening for you about Let It Be? Well, I think for me, you know, I, I do have sort of a memory of when I first saw the film as it wasn't the most exciting thing I had ever seen. Okay. Right. You know, and it was maybe disappointing, maybe is too strong a word, you know, because here's my heroes, the Beatles, and it was, could be a little boring, yeah. but you know what, you know, uh, recording is, it, it is tedious. It isn't. This, people think, oh, wow, a recording studio. A, a lot of it is just getting drum sounds, you know, overdubbing, playing a song, you know, 20 times before you get a decent take. You know, a lot of it is just work. It isn't the most exciting thing in the world. Right. You know what I'm saying? So then to, to kind of find out that it wasn't all just horrible, you know what I mean? That there was some good times that they had. You know, there was some real magic that they created. I mean, look, this is an album that has two of us get back, let it be the long and winding road and across the universe on it. Right. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if any group in the world put out that album today, <laughs> okay, it would be like, what are you kidding? You know? So it's like, it was, it's, it, it, I enjoyed the process because of the, like I said before, of the people that I got to talk to and to, to know what was it like to be there, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, if you could create a time machine, where would you want to go? I mean, I know where I'd want to go. <laughs> I'd want to go back to the 60s in London and I'd want to be hanging out with the Beatles <laughs> and the Rolling <laughs> right. Stones and the Kinks 
and the who, you know. Now, you want to go to the cavern with a really sophisticated recorder is what you want right. to do. there you go. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's where, where else would you? I mean, yeah, you could, Paris in the 20s was probably pretty cool, too, you know. Yeah, but the Beatles I mean, the Renaissance there. was probably awesome. <laughs> I mean, you know, hanging out with Michelangelo. I mean, that, that would have been pretty good, too. Yeah. You know, but so it, it was, you know, there's just all these little things you learn. It's the whole bootleg thing was something I was never a fan of bootlegs because I was so used to, you know, just music recorded so beautifully and perfectly right. in the, in the 60s and the 70s. So the first time I would hear bootlegs, I was sort of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not it just it doesn't it sounds horrible. You know, I'm used to my friends who have these amazing stereo systems. And, you know, this was when quad was like happening and stuff. Right. <laughs> So at first the idea, you know, bootlegs was like, but then as I got into this and I started listening and I started realizing, wow, there's some amazing things you can hear, you know, like when I first, I heard the Kinfawn sessions, you know, which is the, um, the demos that the Beatles did for the white album, right? because they recorded it right onto a four track reel to reel. So it sounds great. It's clean and it sounds beautiful. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And and a lot of the Let It Be stuff. I mean, these, this is recorded, you know, uh, these are original recordings on, you know, they recorded on Nagra, Nagra um, tape recorders, you know, which was a lot of what was used for film, how they would record film sound, because you could, you could use these machines to sync with film. The very common recording machine that was used. Right. So I think the whole bootleg thing was a revelation for me. For the people who, you know, obviously the Beatles fans, they all know Let It Be. I mean, obviously, you know, we all know what it is. There are a lot of people out there who've probably never seen Let It Be. In your mind, if you're sort of talking to them about the book, about the film, what do you feel is the power of the film? And what, how do you feel the book connects to it for people who aren't familiar with what we're talking about? Well, I think the film, it, you have to sort of go in with sort of no expectations. I think if you if you have never seen it, or if you're only a casual fan, or if you're a young person who's interested in this history, you have to sort of go in with sort of low kind of expectations. And then I think that what redeems the film ultimately is the end, is them performing together. You know what I'm saying? And so what I think my book does is it creates the context for it. It's the background. It's the, it's the backstory of, you know, how does it come about? And in terms of where does it fit in in the history of the Beatles? Although there's no official release date for the new Let It Be, we're pretty sure it will be in 2020, just in time to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the original. Help us stick around for our 50th anniversary by subscribing to this podcast, giving us a five-star review, and telling your friends about us. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.